Good morning. I sit up front here. You, you all notice that. I sit up front. I, I'm in my seat a couple minutes before as the countdown's going. And, and uh, I, lo- I like to get surprised when I stand up in front of you and turn around and look at you for the first time and say, holy smokes, there's some people in this room. That's pretty great. Thank you. Hang around after church today. We got something pretty exciting happening. We're going to we're going to fill you in. We're going to let you in on a few things that have been happening here that a lot of you probably don't know about. And uh, we got some good news to share with you. In fact, we have a lot of good news to share with you. And I hope that you're curious if this is maybe the first or second time you've been here worshiping with us and you're kind of checking us out, seeing who we are, what we're like. Um, uh, are, we, um, are we safe <laughs> see, see, somebody's been paying attention now. We're not safe. We're not safe. You're not safe here. It's good, though. It's good. So after church, we're going we're gonna to visit for a few minutes like we do, uh, say hi to one another, and, and uh, Kelly and I will be back at the back letting you not get away, we'll turn you back and send you back to your chair. I don't mean that. I just made that up. But we do want you to stay because we've been asking you to be praying about some things. And uh, we've been praying about these things now for several months. And uh, you've been praying faithfully. I know you've been praying faithfully. I know you've been praying faithfully because um, we're seeing the results. And we want to share with you the results because um, what's the good of asking God for something and then seeing that he has answered your prayer and then never saying, oh, by the way, thank you. That was cool. You remember the story of Jesus healing the 10 lepers and he sends them uh, on their way and he says, go show yourselves to the priests so that uh, you can be declared whole. And as they're going, they're whole. And one of them turns around and says, I got to run back and, and express my thanks to the one who just made me whole. So this, this morning after church, maybe this afternoon after church, uh, we want to express thanks to the one who is making us whole. We introduced this series last Sunday on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, uh, I, I gave you a few quotes from some people who have been uh, thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. And there was one in particular um, by C.S. Lewis who said... Uh, Ask me if you, you, you ask me if I like, if I care for the Sermon on the Mount. Well, if by care for you mean do I like it, how many of us like getting hit in the face with a sledgehammer? <laughs> so are you comfortable? Got a, got a nice uh, firm seat under you and, and lean back against that backrest because I don't want to knock you down. But... Um, Jesus is about to take a few swings at us in this message we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's so important and it's so loaded, it's going to take us six months or more to work our way all the way through it. Because if we, if we downloaded the whole thing all at once, well, first of all, we, we might miss some important stuff. And secondly, we need a chance to catch a breath every once in a while. 
So this morning, we're going to start into the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Beatitudes, the statements of blessing. And uh, there's nine of them, and we're only going to look at three of them at a time. Uh, we're going we're gonna to eat this elephant three bites at a time. I'm going to give you three bites, and then you're going to have a whole week to chew on it and swallow and begin to integrate into our lives what Jesus is saying to us from these words. Uh, Mike Hopper gave me a book when, uh, when I first declared that I would be preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And, and Mike was in on this from before the beginning. We, I, I told him what was coming so that uh, so he wouldn't run off the stage in, in, in fright. I told him what was coming. So he's had a chance to prepare. And he had already purchased this book. And uh, he said, um, I already have the book. And the next Sunday, he gave me the book. And uh, I've been reading this book. I'm trying to stay ahead. It's a book by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, I, I, I happen to be Welsh myself, and the name Lloyd-Jones is a very, very prominent name in Welsh heritage. And so already I like the guy. <laughs> Having never read a word that he had to say, but then I started reading. And you know what they say? That the, the way you know, the way you test the intelligence of another human being is you measure the extent to which they agree with you. And the more they agree with you, the smarter they are. Right? Well, I think uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of the smartest people I've ever heard. I haven't read it, so... Okay. Okay. Well, I'm only a little bit ahead of you, because this book... I have it over there, but I'm not going to show it to you because um, just because. But it's he he was uh, the pastor of Westminster Church in England in the first half of the 20th century for many, many years. And uh, this book is actually transcribed sermons that he preached about this three chapters in the book of Matthew his sermons, he had a secretary before the days of recording devices. She was taking shorthand, capturing his words as he preached them in his church on Sunday morning. Now, now Jody's good, but I don't expect her to do that kind of shorthand stuff. But besides, she's in the nursery today. But um, just a couple of things that he says about the Sermon on the Mount that I want to share with you. Because I don't want you to think this is just all, all me making all of this up. This is not me. I did not write this book. Not the, not the Martin Lloyd-Jones book or the book that contains Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I did not write it. Right? And we talked last week. These are the words that are in the red ink. These are the words that Jesus spoke. Matthew was taking shorthand, furiously copying down every word, however, however he did that. With the help of the Holy Spirit, of course, to make sure he got it right. Lloyd-Jones says, The Sermon on the Mount does not say to us, 
If you live like this, you will be a Christian. You and I can't live like this on our own. Rather, he says, because you are a Christian, live like this. God is God. Jesus is Lord. He is my king. And my God, my Lord, and my king tells me, as a member of my kingdom, as a subject of my kingdom, as a member of my family, as someone who carries my name, this is how you ought to behave. Pow! Lloyd-Jones also wrote this, These beatitudes crush me to the ground. They show me my utter helplessness. And were it not for the new birth, I am undone. So as, as we work our way together through the Sermon on the Mount, as we... Uh, unfold these words of Jesus. Let's remember these words and the principles they convey do not make us Christians if we listen to them. They do not make us Christians if we follow their advice. This is the blueprint God has given to us to say, now that you're mine, Glorify me by living this way. And then Jesus said later, Oh, by the way, by this will all other people know that you are mine. No man or woman can live the Sermon on the Mount in and of ourselves, alone and unaided. If it were not for the Holy Spirit in me, I wouldn't even be standing up here talking to you about this, never mind trying to conform my way of living and thinking and behaving to what Jesus said is the way God wants me to live. This series of sermons is not intended for the unbeliever to say, okay, if I do these things, God will accept me. This series of messages, these words that Jesus spoke, are for the one who has already come into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, like the thief on the cross who never had a chance to live the Sermon on the Mount. But since you and I came to the cross and had our sins taken from us and had our had the penalty for our sins lifted and carried by another so that you and I can go free, all the things that we've been singing about here. Because of that, Paul says, what? Do you not know? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. I am not my own. 
I have been set free from the chains of bondage to sin and punishment and death. I have been set free from that, but I am not a free man. I belong to another. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And if you've been set free from that bondage to sin, so are you. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are going to be nine statements that all begin with the words, Blessed are, blessed are, and uh, what does it mean to be blessed? We see people posting on Facebook, I'm so blessed. <laughs> Kelly posts this all the time. I have the best husband in the world. <laughs> I'm so blessed. <laughs> Follow her on Facebook, you'll see. <laughs> Shortly after Kelly and I were first married, I was working uh, in a in a construct for a construction company, uh, getting getting some years of experience under my belt, waiting for God to open an opportunity for me to work at a church full time. And in the meantime, I was working at this construction company with a bunch of of, of carpenters and masons and rugged guys. And uh, on payday, they like to go out uh, after work, stop off at the local bar, pub, tavern, in whatever, and and spend half of their paycheck before they went home. And I said to Kelly, you ought to be glad <laughs> that I don't do that. She said to me, if you did do that, you wouldn't be with me. <laughs> See? <laughs> She's blessed. I'm blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? You can think about right now in your own life, how are you measuring your blessing? How do you measure what blessing is? How do you know you're blessed? We've been taught here, growing up in this part of the world, that um, if you're a newly married couple, you're blessed when you have your first mortgage and you're not renting an apartment or you're not living in your parents' house. You're blessed if you have your own house. You're blessed if you could buy a new car. You're blessed if you could have two cars. I remember, again, Kelly and I starting out with, a, with not a whole lot. Um, we had to choose. When Kelly went to the grocery store, we had to choose Grape jelly or strawberry jelly. And I thought we were blessed the day she came home with both. We have both. We're blessed. I have a doctor friend. He, he serves with me on the board of Montrose Bible Conference. We had a board meeting yesterday because of the weather. We had it by Zoom. So um, we learned in the board meeting yesterday that one of our colleagues on the board, his name is Dr. Gary, 
uh, is on his way to a secret undisclosed location somewhere in Eastern Europe. We found out that Samaritan's Purse is less secret than Dr. Gary, and we found out that Samaritan's Purse is sending doctors and nurses and medical workers into the Ukraine. Uh, my friend, Dr. Gary, is on his way to the Ukraine. Uh, I'm blessed. I don't have fighter jets flying over my roof. I don't have artillery shells exploding in the neighborhoods around me. I'm blessed. We're blessed. How do you measure blessing? God says, Jesus says, you are blessed by God if you are this kind of person. What does it mean for you to be blessed by God? This is what God says is the kind of person I want to hang out with. The people who I've chosen to be my sons and daughters, the people who I've chosen to be my subjects in my kingdom, uh, they are going to be blessed by me because I am bestowing my favor on them I am claiming them as my own. I am making promises that they can cash whenever they need them. As we look at these Beatitudes, Jesus is going to say, this is the kind of person who is blessed, and this is the blessing that is coming to them. What does it mean to be blessed? Blessed are the poor in spirit. There is more than one kind of poverty. I grew up poor. I didn't know I was poor. But I was. I only started to realize I was poor when I started to compare what I had to the things that my friends had. We'd compare with, with each other in January when we came back to school. What'd you get for Christmas? We had some um, people who grew up on dairy farms. In, in our part of New York State, the dairy farmers back then were the prosperous people. My f- farmer friend was the first one of us to get his own car. It was a Ford Pinto. I'm not sure how blessed that is. <laughs> but, but, but he had his own car. I went to his house, I helped him work on his farm, I helped clean the barn, I helped put in hay bales, the kind of thing that farmers do. I thought it was cool, because I didn't have to do it twice a day, every day. My friend had guns, we could go out in the pasture and and shoot tin cans. He had a horse we could ride, he had things. He had way more than I did, I thought he was blessed, and then I realized... Man, I'm poor. I don't have any of the stuff he has. Because we measure wealth and poverty by the things that we accumulate. I've been to the Dominican Republic. I've been there twice on missions trips. And uh, I came home from the Dominican Republic ashamed. When I looked at everything I had was building a, a roof over an outdoor patio area that they were, they were going to use for a 
a cafeteria for their school. And uh, I was uh, working with uh, a Haitian, a young man, Haitian man. Um, He was working, climbing the ladder in flip-flops, the real cheap kind of flip-flops. And I had this nice leather work belt with a nice leather nail apron. And uh, he needed a place to put the nails. So he took a two-liter plastic Coke bottle and, and cut a piece out of it and cut a slot in it and threaded his belt through that two-liter soda bottle and he used that for his nail apron. I have pictures of this. I looked at that. I looked at this young man six feet up on a ladder reaching into that soda bottle He had his pencil in there, and he had his nails, and he had his hammer tucked into his belt. And I'm on the ground handing him something to work on, and I'm wearing $100 work boots, and I'm wearing this nice leather work belt, and I have these nice tools. And I looked at him, and I looked at me, and I said, what's what's going on here? I left my work boots for him. They happened to, they happened to fit him. And then I didn't have to carry him back in my luggage. And I felt that's the very least I could do. Guess what? Of the two of us, of the two of us who worked on that project, I think he was the more blessed. He knew he was blessed. I knew he was blessed. And I wondered if my material things were in the way of God's blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There is a material poverty in which a person has very little, if anything, by way of material possessions. The poor might be homeless. They might be clothed in rags. They might have little or nothing to eat. They might be forced to beg for a scrap of bread. Or or in contemporary days, they might stand in intersections with hand-scrawled signs looking something like this. Have you seen that? We, We see these... People and these cardboard signs, and we say, well, they're poor. But maybe they're not poor in spirit. Maybe they're just poor in possessions. Does God read those signs? Does God care? Do we? But there's another poverty. It's, it's more... Difficult to discern, usually. It's a spiritual poverty. It's a poverty in which a a person recognizes that he has no standing before God. He has no claim upon God's attention or affection. He is deserving of nothing from God but judgment. To illustrate this, Jesus told a parable. It's found in... 
Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Here's a picture that gives us a hint. You see that, that uh, picture? It kind of tells you what the parable is, doesn't it? It goes like this. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Notice that turn of phrase. To some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And then they treated others with contempt. Jesus was seeing people around him who had this spiritual pride, not poverty. They were not poor in spirit. They were haughty in spirit. They were proud in spirit. And they looked down on others with contempt. Jesus tells this parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, a publican. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. Oh, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, rapists, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector over here. What's he even doing here? He's got no business being in the temple. I fast twice a week. And I give tithes of all that I get. This prayer isn't about God at all, is it? Jesus, Jesus telling this story draws this character so clearly. He's praying, but he's not praying to God. He's performing. Jesus went on, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm just an old sinner. When we were praying before the service in the back room, Mike prayed this prayer. He didn't know. He didn't know that I was going to make reference to this. But I said, yep, there it is. This is the prayer that you and I should come into church with. God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I'm not going to try to impress you, God. Jesus nails the point. I tell you, this man, the sinner, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now I ask you, who would you rather do the humbling? Would you rather humble yourself? Make your way down to the ground on your knees. Maybe grabbing onto something or someone to support you? Would you rather humble yourself or would you rather be knocked down? 
Jesus describes this poverty of spirit in this parable as the one who is rewarded by God. You are justified because you are humble, because you know you can't stand in my presence. It is you that I find favor with and not the one who thinks he doesn't need anything from me. It's one of the reasons why Jesus in another place said, so hard for rich men to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter the gates of heaven. They don't think they need anything. We think we have everything. We're self-made people. God is not impressed with our prideful claims of spirituality. He is not looking with favor on our self-righteousness. He does not find pleasure in hearing us boast of our religious accomplishments or point out our generosity in sacrificial giving. I, I ought not to lift my eyes to heaven and say, Look, Lord, look how much I did. Thinking that God will give me a little extra. Because after all, church went overtime last Sunday. God is certainly not impressed by our attitude of spiritual superiority. When we compare ourselves to others who seem to be somewhat lower down the scale of our measure of value and worth. And significance. But the blessing is promised to the one who knows that he is nothing. And more importantly, that God is everything. He must increase, I must decrease. I got a gift in the mail this week an anonymous gift, a t shirt. I wore it yesterday. I didn't wear it today because it's, you know, it's Sunday. And I, I am wearing a t-shirt under all of this, but not that one. It says, he, the greater than symbol, I. He is greater than I. He is much greater than I. I don't even belong on the same t-shirt as he is. Blessed are the poor in spirit. To the one who knows, to the one who knows that I am nothing and he is everything, God says, to you, I am giving everything. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is worth more than every single car that sunk in the ocean because the ship carrying them was burning and had to be abandoned. Porsche, was it Porsche and Volkswagen who lost millions of dollars of automobiles? God is giving you 
the kingdom of heaven can't even be compared. Blessed is the poor in spirit. The second of the Beatitudes that we're looking at this morning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus is reassuring us that he cares about sorrow and grief and those who have it. He's familiar with sorrow and grief. Listen to what Isaiah said about this person. Hadn't been born yet. Hadn't come to earth yet. But Isaiah prophesied about this one who would be saying, Blessed are those who mourn. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Acquainted. That's such a nice word. Oh, yeah, we're acquainted. We've met. Jesus was acquainted with grief. One of the great understatements in the Bible, right? He was one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. You'll remember this verse from Hebrews chapter 4. Pastor John worked, uh, worked us through Hebrews in the last couple of years. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. We do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is one who can say to me, I know how you feel. And when he says to me, I know how you feel, he says that not with condescension, but with compassion. So Peter urges us in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties, cast all your cares on him. For he cares for you. Does Jesus care? Oh yes he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. Do you mourn over people or things that you have lost? Do you mourn over people who are lost? Do you grieve for those who have turned their faces from you? Do you grieve for those who have hidden their faces from God? We mourn for those who have died. We understand that. But many of us are also mourning for those who are trying to live without God. And so without hope. I know parents who mourn for their children. I know children who mourn for their parents. Those who are gone and those who are still here. But not alive to Christ. There are lots of reasons for us to mourn. To grieve. Most of us, probably all of us are grieved over what's happening in Europe. We're grieved as we hear stories of people who are fleeing from their homes. Women and children 
running for their lives, but the, the, their husbands and fathers have to stay and fight. New orphans. There is a great evil that's an obvious, visible evil happening, and then there is other evil that slips in behind the great, obvious, visible evil, human trafficking and looting and all kinds of other evils that are happening. And it grieves us, right? Some of us are grieved to the point of action, like my friend, Dr. Gary. Some of us are grieved to the point of action, like those who are donating money or goods. Some of us are grieved to the point of action by helping uh, receive refugees to to a, a place of safety. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God knows how to do that. God, you know, one of the things that we are so bad at is knowing how to comfort those who mourn. We try to find words. We, we try to find words that will help. Words are kind of my tools. It's, it's, it's what's in my toolbox, words. But words don't, Get it done sometimes. Most of the time, words aren't enough. There aren't the right words. What I've learned over the years in trying to help grieving people is presence. Just knowing that I'm not alone. Just knowing that there's someone sitting with me. Someone listening. Not someone... Talking to me. Someone listening to me. Someone putting their arm around me. Someone passing me Kleenex. Not saying, there, there, there. It's going to be okay. You'll get through this. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. And God knows how to comfort those who are in grief. And I, I have, have an idea that probably almost, if not every person in this room, has experienced some kind of grief and some kind of effort by another person to try to help you with it. And then the difference between that and when God sits down with you. And puts his arm around you. And listens to you. Blessed are you who mourn. Jesus says. For you will be comforted. And then the third. Of these statements of blessing. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Who are the meek? I've heard, probably you've heard, meekness is not the same thing as weakness. Meek people aren't necessarily weak. 
Meek people are people who might be very, very, very strong. Strong enough to say, I'm not going to insist that I get my way. I am strong enough to yield the right of way. I'm strong enough to open the door and hold it for you so that you can go first. And you can be the first one in the, in the McDonald's order line. You're probably not getting the last Big Mac anyway. The meek are people who are gentle, they're humble, they're unassuming. They're not likely to assert their own claims or their own rights and nor are they likely to call attention to the injustices that are enacted upon them. They might be, they might be calling attention to injustice that, that is being done to others, but they're probably not going to be the one to say, I'm going to sue you. How deep are your pockets? I'm coming after you. I'm right. And you're going to tell me I'm right. This runs counter to our value as Americans. We are taught to value those who stand up for themselves and assert their rights. If you don't stand up for yourself, who's going to stand up for you? This is kind of a a thing that we're taught. We're conditioned in our culture to value individual accomplishments and achievements and to reward those who climb the ladder of success all the way to the very top. We admire them. They write their books, and we buy them. We buy them because maybe they said something in their book that will help me climb to the height that they have achieved. But this is not the way that Jesus leads us. There's this beautiful passage in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 42. Jesus called the disciples to them. They they had been arguing. James and John asked for a big favor. Jesus gently told them no, but the other disciples heard about it and they were arguing. Who are they? Who are they to think that they're better than us? Jesus heard this bickering and he called them over and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. This is not the way. Let me show you a better way. He goes on. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That's so counter to our instinct, isn't it? How will I know that I'm successful when other people start doing things for me? When other people start telling me things like, oh, you're too important. You shouldn't do that. Let me do that. That's a, that's a, deadly, that's a deadly place for a leader to be. 
to begin to think that we're entitled to preferential treatment or deferential treatment. That somehow we've earned the right to let other people do things for us. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Had we known who Jesus really was, he would never have walked anywhere. We would have, we would have carried him everywhere in one of those plush sedan chairs. He would have, he would have never had to turn a few fish and loaves into a feast. If we know who Jesus was, every time he showed up, we'd have a potluck and everybody would bring everything. We don't need to strive. We don't need to climb. We don't need to acquire. We don't need to accumulate We don't need to chase fame or fortune. We're not trying to build huge crowds of people. A few more would be nice. But we're not trying to build a huge crowd of people. We're not trying to be world famous. We're not trying to be on Sunday morning television. We need to learn to see ourselves as servants. We need to see ourselves as being committed to helping others. And not just one another's, but the others outside of our walls. We need to commit ourselves to helping other people move forward. To move inward. To move into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That doesn't sound weak to me. That doesn't sound timid or frightened or cowering inside the four walls of the church so that no evil finds us here. It finds us. Evil finds us, right? We bring it with us. And we need to just let God worry about bringing the rewards. (laughs) By the way, hang around for our meeting after, okay? I'm just saying. God provides the rewards, and God's rewards are worth having. Blessed are the meek. What are they getting? They're inheriting the earth, everything. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Jesus testifies to us that these these are the characteristics and qualities that God values most highly in those he wants to share his life with. Now there's more. There's a lot more, but this is enough for us to go on for the next few days, right? 
We've got a lot to think about. We've got a lot to consider. We've got a lot to work on. And I pray that you will let God lean in on these three simple things. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to mourn, to grieve? What does it mean to be meek? And are any of these characteristics visible in my life at all? You see, what Martin Lloyd-Jones meant maybe when he said, these beatitudes crush me to the ground. (laughs) But Jesus also said, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Learn from me. Even the Son of Man... Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. I, re- I remind myself, I remind myself of that principle. And just inviting you to put this idea in your head too. Every now and then, I, I am faced with a, an unpleasant chore. Whether it's at home or, or, or here. Whether I see something at school that needs to be done. Something around the church that needs to be done. Something in the the neighborhood that needs to be done, something in the community. I see, I see it, and I think somebody ought to do something about that. And as, as I'm going along in my walk with Jesus, I'm hearing more and more frequently when, when, when that thought comes into my head, there's something should be done, something needs to be done, somebody ought to do something about that. I'm, I'm hearing Jesus say to me, aren't you somebody? I heard one time, a need, a need seen is an assignment given. A need seen is an assignment given. If God puts it on my heart, if he points it out to me and says to me, Dennis, something needs to be done here. If he lays that on me, that's an assignment. And the nice thing about getting God's assignments is he gives you, along with the assignment, every single thing you need to complete it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for crushing me to the ground again with your words. I have not yet heard it enough because it's still working at me. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean for me? What does it mean for me to be poor in spirit? Am I that? What am I grieving? What am I mourning over? Am I mourning over things that I have lost Or am I mourning over people who are lost? What does it mean for me to be meek? How can I be meek but not weak? How can I be strong but under control?
under the Spirit's control. Help me, I pray. Help us, I pray, to work through these questions this week that we might enter into your blessing.
been anointed, risen, and exalted. You are the name above every name. Oh man, that Sermon on the Mount is a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot to take in. It's a lot to hear. It, t- it turns our turns our nature upside down in a good way <laughs> but a tough way Lord uh, I, I pray that we would we would chew on this this week and uh, you would prepare our hearts and minds for what's next bless and keep us as we go in Jesus name amen you are dismissed